Hey, tennis fans, you are listening to Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. We are also members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre. We're nearing the end of the tennis calendar. Felix Oje Aliassime has the title to his name. Marina Stakushic, who was just a recent guest on this podcast, won in Toronto at the Tevlin Challenger. And Mike, you joined a uh, you were joined by a special guest from the music scene uh, for this latest episode, which was a, a cool change up. Yeah, I'm really excited about this one uh, to welcome Paul Langlois, guitarist from the Tragically Hip, one of the, if not the biggest, a little bit biased here, uh, bands to ever come out of Canada. And so for our Canadian listeners, this will be a bit of a change of pace but someone familiar to them in the sense that uh, everybody in Canada knows the hip. Uh, and for our listeners south of the border and in other places worldwide, you may still know the hip because they do have a following in other countries as well. Uh, but you're probably surprised to hear that uh, that this musician, this very famous Canadian musician, is a big tennis fan too. And and I had no idea, so uh, props to Jake Gold, manager of the band, who we've had on before a couple of years ago, um, to sort of say to me, hey, Mike, you know, Paul's a big tennis fan. Maybe have him on the program. And uh, the band is releasing a, uh, a re-release of one of the most popular albums, Phantom Power, this coming week. So it just seemed like a great time to do this. And Ben, I think a, a nice sort of crossover for us to mix tennis with music. We're both big music fans. You've got a Kingston connection, which is where Paul and the band are from. So it, it seemed really fitting on many levels. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I, I grew up uh, just a few blocks, actually, away from guitarist Rob Baker, also uh, one of the members of the Tragically Hip. I used to on my way to school to Winston Churchill Public School, I would walk past, uh, you know, be 10, 11 years old. I'd see Rob Baker out on his porch playing his acoustic guitar. So I have a oh, so quite cool. quite a close connection to the Tragically Hip, who are, of course, by far the biggest band to ever come out of Kingston, Ontario. And as you said, one of the biggest bands in Canada. So here is Mike's interview with hip guitarist Paul Langlois. Today on Matchpoint Canada, I'm especially excited to introduce our guest, Paul Langlois. For 30 plus years, Paul's been guitarist and member of one of Canada's greatest ever music groups, The Tragically Hip. Currently, he's continuing to make new music and is touring with the Paul Langlois Band. I've personally been a huge fan of The Tragically Hip ever since a friend passed me a mixtape at the age of 11 with Nautical Disaster on it. So this is a really special episode for me. Uh, Paul, I'm very happy to welcome you to Matchpoint Canada. Well, thanks a lot, Mike. I'm happy to be here. And thanks for being a, a hip supporter. <laughs> Long time hip supporter. Now, now passing that on to my kids as well. So, uh, you know, so it goes. But uh, yeah, you guys have been just such a huge part of the fabric of our country. And uh, it's interesting because on our podcast, typically we're talking to tennis players and coaches. And uh, so some of our listeners might be wondering, hey, what's with this musician they've got on this week? But I like crossover episodes. Uh, we had Ron McLean, who's a, a big hockey broadcaster for those here in Canada, of course, on the CBC. And uh, and so this is my next installment of Tennis Meets a Different Part of My Life, in this case, Music. Um, and big thanks to your manager, Jake Gold, for this one. Uh, I was speaking with Jake towards the end of the summer and said, hey, I ran into Johnny Fay, the, the drummer at the National Bank Open. Could we ever have him on the podcast? And he said, well, sure, you could have Johnny, but, you know, Paul's the real tennis fan in the band. So maybe tell me a little bit of your connection or enjoyment of the sport for our listeners who are wondering what the heck you're doing here today. Um, yeah, actually, you know, um, Jake and I and uh, my uh, friend of his and my wife, Joanne, and Johnny and his uh, gal, uh, Lara, went to the U.S. Open. Um not this past summer, but the uh, last summer. Right on. And um, yeah, I mean, I've always followed tennis, always, and um, since I was a kid. And um, you know, when I was a kid, it was like Mac and Borg and uh, Jimmy Connors, and you know, yes. and, uh, Chrissy, and um, you know, it was just uh, I just watched every, certainly every major, and. Um, and that has continued, you know, there was a kind of a period in the nineties. I think we were just on the road a lot, a lot. And I kind of fell a bit out of touch with uh, who's who in the tennis world and that kind of thing, like a little bit. Um, and then, um, you know, got back into it, uh, certainly with Federer and um, eventually Nadal and um, the big three and all that kind of stuff and the Williams sisters. And so anyway, 
I've always watched it. Joanne's always been um, a tennis fan as well. I always played it. Um, you know, I was sort of um, like at our high school that all the hip went to. I wouldn't be considered. Uh, we had kind of jets and sweats, and uh, I would probably be a bit more of a sweat. And um, but I had a buddy, and we used to hustle tennis um, from the the sort of athletes that you know the basketball players and volleyball players and all that. And we'd say, "Oh, we'll, we'll meet you after school at a place called Richardson Stadium that had all these outdoor courts." And and we would go there every day after school and place. But they'd look at us and like. <laughs> well, what do you mean? We're like, well, we'll play it for a case of beer or whatever. Um, that wasn't in high school, was it? That was in high school, yeah. <laughs> and uh, anyway, so uh, got pretty okay at it. Never um, took lessons, but we just kind of um, were scrappy tennis players. And um, yeah, so love it. And I would say follow it probably even more now. Certainly, uh, Joanne watches everything. Every ATP event, amazing. Um, you can access it now, right? I mean, it's like you get the tennis channel and just you record everything. And um, so I'm pretty in tune, in tune with it uh, these days, and uh, yeah, I just love it. Yeah, well, you make a good point because when I was a kid, it was the majors as well that I would watch, uh, not the Aussie Open because you know too late or too early for me at that age, I guess. But yeah. certainly the other ones, and yeah, you make a good point that now you can catch it all because of technology. Whereas when I was growing up, it wasn't the case. But certainly mm. the names you mentioned, I caught them at the tail end of their careers. So McEnroe and Connors, I mean, I've got vivid memories of watching them and and Martina Navratilova and Steffi Graf. That hooked me. Certainly the fiery personalities of, of Mac and, and Connors uh, got me into it as a kid. Um, yeah. do, do you play tennis? Like, do you still play tennis nowadays? Mm, like, uh, not. We didn't play this summer. Uh, we only played once last summer we have a friend a guy in um in my, my band paul langwa band greg ball um he and his wife zoe live on a farm and there's a tennis court there so we've been talking about having a big you know tennis tournament but it hasn't happened but that that's where i played you know basically maybe once or twice a summer uh, in the past few summers but no it's been a long time and i can't like i thought it would just all come back to me but <laughs> not so much eh? being in my late 50s yeah just uh, you know even reaching up to it's just like to serve is kind of like a lot more of a workout than um i ever remember <laughs> i i embarrass myself regularly each spring when i go out and i'm like where's my serve i've been playing tennis at least recreationally since i was like six or seven and it's like starting brand new every spring when i hit the court so i yeah uh, i certainly feel you on that one did uh did you and the bandmates, you and the guys in the hip, uh, ever play tennis uh, back in the day? Uh, yeah, Gordon and I did. Gordon Downey and I did. Um, we have a documentary uh, that's coming out. Mm, I don't know exactly when, but um, within it, probably in about a year, that Gord Downey's brother, Mike Downey, is making. And, um, you know, it's like four episodes an hour each. And in the first episode, uh, just a great shot i hope they kept it great couple of shots of gordon and i playing tennis like kind of action shots and um it just tickled me because we we actually played a lot of sports like um together um in the hip when we were either on the road or you know in the studio on a sunday take sundays off and go play soccer or, or um you know we played some baseball and um we played tennis i'm not sure if the other guys really did i mean i think they did a little bit but both gordon and i um so were you were, hustling were you hustling them too like you did the guys in high school no no we never, <laughs> no, never do that we were hustling athletes um not that those guys aren't athletes but just kind of um we were targeting um popular athletes when we were hustling but um anyway yeah so we did play uh gordon and i played um i hung around him in high school so um he was a decent tennis player, too. He was in a very good athlete. Canadian tennis has certainly come a long way from, you know, the era you're talking about. And and when I was growing up as well, there weren't really any, you know, huge names for us to follow and get behind. Um, nowadays, there's so many of them on the men's and women's tour. Are, are there any players in particular here at home that you enjoy following? 
yeah, I mean, you know, I I would say at this point, the big four, um, you know, Layla and Bianca and Felix and uh, Dennis, um, even though all four of them are kind of struggling, just, you know, just at the moment in time, but it's a really up and down sort of sport, you know, really, you know, well, Ronich too, you know, it's, it's just so uh, dependent on remaining in peak physical shape and no injuries. And, um, you know, it's a real grind uh, um, is my impression, real grind and absolutely uh, tournaments every week. And it's just like, it's relentless. And, and, um, but I enjoy uh, watching them and, and, um, you know, Bianca winning the, the U S open was awesome. Felix was really, you know, he was really getting um, close there. You know, he was, sure. he was top 10 and um, he was getting close. I don't know if it's injuries. Like, I don't really read too much background, but um, something where he's kind of more in the teens now. But, um, yeah, I enjoy watching all of them. I always cheer for any Canadian doing anything. Right on. And and they're also young, those four that you mentioned as well, that you have to think there's so many years ahead of them for them to still figure it out. You know, just like a young band that emerges on the scene and has a big record or a big hit then has all that fame come their way, has to probably figure out how to navigate that on a consistent basis, I would imagine, too, to make a, a connection between sport and, and music. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's and momentum is involved, too. And, and um, you know, with music and artists and bands, depending on what kind of route you're going, um, if you're talking about um, the way we did it, which was the live the live route, um, trying to turn people on um, to us playing live and touring and that kind of thing. It's again, it's, it's a grind and it's not going to go 100% great all the time. And so it requires a lot of uh, commitment, motivation. So, and, and I'm sure probably 10 times that in the tennis world. Tennis players and, and athletes know when they've played a good match or, or had a bit of a stinker. Um, all the times I saw you guys play, it always felt like you nailed it. But I'm sure there must have been some gigs where maybe afterwards you guys felt like you were having a rough time out there. Do you recall any sort of moments like that where you left the stage feeling like, oh, maybe I didn't quite hit the mark tonight? I'm going to be honest and say no. Uh, um, it, it just, um, so <laughs> there you go. Basically, that means playing in a band at least our band where we were very lucky with our other bandmates and that we knew each other well. And, um, we all had the same goal in mind. We just hardly ever, ever, I can't even think of one, um, had a bad gig. I mean, we had like a, a playing wise, I mean, we had shows and gigs that, you know, there could have been more people and, um, you know, it could have, um, you know, things could have been better about the venue and that kind of stuff. But um, in general, we we right from the very beginning, playing live was was um, our top skill. And um, so I really just only remember good shows. And, uh, uh, you know, there probably was one. But, you know, the only time that that would ever happen is maybe couple guys weren't getting along or whatever you know and and you, you know a different kind of uh emotion was involved but um not often at all hardly ever sounds like my thursday night men's league hockey team i can uh, relate to that on some level <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> so i want to try and make another parallel i had a lot of fun this week prepping for this trying to be like how can i make some connections between tennis and music and so i'm going to try and make one here and and full disclosure i might you know fail miserably but at any rate here goes. Um, in tennis, it's rare to see a star, you know, one of the top players in the sport, um, ever go down to sort of the minor leagues. Once you've you've made it and you're playing the big stadiums and you're one of those marquee players, you know, for a good chunk of their career, they're able to sustain that. Mm. I'd say in music as well. Once you hit a certain point, you're probably playing the bigger stadiums and you don't have to go to the smaller bars and smaller towns that you, you once did. Um, an example of a big tennis player, though, who did have to go back down to the sort of the minor leagues, the Challenger Tour, was Andre Agassi in the 90s when he was kind of going through a tough time and, and rebuilt himself. 
I, I remember seeing you guys playing a super small venue here in Toronto, and it's not because you were sent down to the minor leagues or banished to that level, but you chose to. And it was when you were putting out your album now for Plan A, which I think was 2009, 2010, I want to say. Yeah. And you decided to publicize and promote that by playing one of the smallest little venues here in Toronto, uh, the supermarket, um, to about 200 or so people, I want to guess, every night. And you were kind of almost like the house band that week. And I just wanted to ask, I've always been kind of curious, where did that idea come from? Because it seems so unique. You could have gone big right off the bat, but you you chose to play a smaller venue like that. And for the diehard fans, it was like a dream come true to see you in that environment. So what was sort of the, the genesis behind that uh, happening? Well, uh, I remember, remember it well. And um, it was a great time. It was super small club. Um, but, um, you know, we always try to come up with unique and and we're not unique for this but um just unique sort of ways to play as the records coming out like surprise shows um which we did in kingston um many times at little clubs like the club called the toucan or the wellington and um you know just kind of to um I don't know, surprise people and to have us get a chance to run through the set before we're going to move on to a, a tour. But honestly, we, um, we had, uh, we were very lucky that we played small clubs all the way through, you know, we were playing in the States and trying to work our way up there. And the States is massive. So many cities, like 30 to 50 cities, um, that you got to cover. And, and it, the way we were doing it was really with not much radio play. And so we just had to keep coming back relentlessly and the same with Europe. Um, although we did start with a crowd in Holland because in the Netherlands, uh, they're just so grateful um, to any Canadian. So any Canadian band that goes to play in Holland uh, has a full crowd to start. And that was, you know, for us, if we had a full crowd to start, you know, we just kept them for, and, and grew them for a long time. But we always had the chance to play small clubs, theaters. And then the difference was, you know, in Canada, um, we grew and, and, you know, theaters and then to arenas. And um, so we had that great time and opportunity as well. Uh, that was more a learning curve, how to get better at um, playing the bigger shows. But we would always uh, like, and some tours would be back and forth, you know, like uh, down to a 500 seat club and then back up to, you know, a big theater in Chicago and then up to an arena in Winnipeg and then, you know, back down to a small club um, in Providence, Rhode Island or wherever, you know, it just kind of, uh, there was a lot of variety and really there was a lot of touring. We didn't stop. And, mm. and, um, and that, I think, helped us a lot, too. Well, we always appreciated that. I mean, your fans, as great as it is to throw the music on and listen to it in the car or at home or whatever, nothing quite replicates those those live shows. And, and those shows at the supermarket were, I think, probably among my favorite of the 20-plus shows that, that I saw during my time. Um, you know, for those listeners who are tuning in, we got many in Canada. Obviously, we're a Canadian tennis podcast, the podcast of Tennis Canada, so primarily Canadian listeners. But we get a bunch south of the border. And and overseas as well. So for anyone listening, I just want to put in perspective that you know, the Tragically Hip is, I would say, the, the greatest, the biggest, most iconic band of all time to come out of our country. Um, members include, so aside from Paul and drummer Johnny Fay, who I mentioned earlier, um, guitarist Rob Baker, bass player Gord Sinclair, and of course, charismatic lead singer, who sadly we lost in 2017, Gord Downey. Uh, the, the music is still coming out. And from what I would imagine, there's still a lot of unreleased material um, part of the reason that we're having you on right now is that November 3rd, a 25th anniversary re-release of Phantom Power is coming out. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what this is going to include and what it's like for you and the guys in the band to look back 25 years on on this, this particular album as you kind of uh, re-release it here? Um, well, what it's like is, is um, a good kind of odd um, feeling. You know, if Gord was still here, we wouldn't be doing this. And and honestly, we just would not be looking back. Um, 
And looking back and finding this stuff, I think was a um, a very gradual decision after he died and we were all kind of just obviously grieving and lost and not coming together at all, like separate sort of um, individual experience. We weren't talking, maybe a conference call every month, once a month with no enthusiasm. And, and then we just started talking. We re-hooked up with Jake Gold, whom you mentioned before, another massive tennis enthusiast. <laughs> yes, um, and um, so he became our manager again. He was our manager for our first 17 years. And then we were with uh, other managers for the next 17. And now we're back with them. And that was in and around the beginning of COVID. And we just, that, you know, he kick-started a bit more enthusiasm and, and we just started looking backwards and Johnny Fay, our drummer is um, very retained a lot, a lot of information as far as like what records were recorded on what and how the tapes were labeled. I mean, he would hang out with the producer and engineer and, and really take in all this information. It's been years and years, but um, he would, I would say would be uh, the shepherd of, of, um, finding this stuff and then we just thought i don't know you know once we started listening to it because we've done this with a couple of records um road apples the last one um where it's kind of like wow this stuff sounds good and people haven't really haven't heard it before so with phantom power <clears throat> feels like that was one of our peaks um as far as like everyone was firing on all cylinders and we loved our producer, Steve Berlin, who plays in Los Lobos. Um, very thoughtful, very musical guy. and uh, Great friend. So we were just feeling good um, when we recorded Phantom Power. And we did that at our studio outside Kingston in the town of Bath called the Bathhouse. And um, took us a few weeks. And um, But there were extra songs again. And so this is going to... Um, you know, the special sort of uh, Phantom Power uh, box set, uh, whatever you want to call it, is going to include um, extra songs that um, were never released. And, um, you know, a live show where uh, um, a lot of Phantom Power stuff was played. Um, live show from Pittsburgh, actually, Pennsylvania. We just picked a show. We had a few and... Um, you know, it's kind of it's it's kind of like warts and all with us. With no one gets too cute about, oh, this show's way better than that one. It's really all about the audio. Is the audio good? Because you know, well, we're you know, mistakes are mistakes, um, and honestly, it, it it's just like we played well together. So you know, um, there's not going to be many. You can't that. go wrong. Can't go wrong, and and. Um, so yeah, those special things like that, you know, an Atmos mix, uh, obviously of uh, of uh, Phantom Power, and it's been interesting. You know, it keeps us um, doing this kind of thing, not constantly, but um, in with semi regularity, it keeps us in touch with each other, and it keeps us kind of thinking about special things we could do, and um, it's far more positive now than it was in the i would say three years after gore died because during those three years i mean i even said a couple times like we we did we did it we, we have a legacy like we played our shows and we made our records so right why are we talking about doing anything else and then gradually i came to realize and and i think the other guys too just like well you know we, it's probably a good idea to just you know, honor, uh, what we did and, and what we accomplished and what Gord accomplished. And, and so everyone's pretty into it and, and, um, yeah. And Phantom Power, uh, in a couple of weeks, uh, coming back out and excited about it. You know, it was, uh, we did the last tour and, um, I was doing the set list and, um, we played more Phantom Power songs than from any other record. And that includes, you know, um, 
fully completely and and uh you know the earlier you got some big ones from back then for sure yeah yeah but phantom power we just seem to know more of those songs like i think nine of them and um so yeah phantom power i think was the only record played every night too like four songs from right right yeah well, super excited to hear it. I mean, I know when Saskadelphia came out, which was from the Road Apples era, it was so cool because it's like these are new songs, new new hip songs that you haven't heard before. And yet there's a familiarity because they harken back to that particular era and the sound that you guys had because you really evolved over those those years and those albums. I felt like that sound changed as you went along. So it's um, mm-hmm. it's really cool. I'm glad that, to hear that you guys are enjoying the process as well. Uh, and that there's benefits on your side, but I can say from a fan perspective, yeah, we're loving it. So keep it coming. And, and I could imagine that this would be something maybe at other marquee moments in future albums that, that you guys may do similar things moving forward then. Uh, I would think so. Yeah. I mean, you know, the odd comment um, is made on a zoom call or, or now, you know, uh, meeting in person, more than you know zoom calls there for a couple of years and but anyway the odd comment is probably made like okay are we seriously are we going to do this again and you know you kind of base it on anniversaries of a certain record and uh, you know we could come up we had a lot of records so there could be an anniversary every single year so the you know we're just trying to um not dial back, but just make sure that it's not too, too much. And, right. Um, but you're right. It's very, uh, it's enjoyable and rewarding for us too, just to more the looking for it than anything else. And then discovering like Saskadelphia, like I didn't want to push play on that once it was all kind of put together. Cause I just thought ah, it's not, it's not going to be up to scratch. And sure enough, it was. And the same with the Phantom Power stuff. And, and so, um, yeah, we'll keep doing it uh, here and there just uh, for our own enjoyment. And and we are aware, like you said, that um, that the fans like it too, you know, that they, that, and especially it's treated so well, like that the quality is high. Mm-hmm. Unlike the bootlegs, you know, which are great, you know, and we had a lot of, lot of hit bootlegs out there, but um, it's just tough when it's recorded in the crowd or whatever. It's just, sonically it we just can't uh we can't have it um or at least um we're trying to beat it by a long way by remixing it and um you know and we have our guy mark freakin who's our sound man but our sound expert for years and he remixes the stuff and then sends it all around we all approve and and uh so yeah it's it's a nice process well, I can't wait for November 3rd, so I'm counting down the days on the calendar. And uh, <laughs> as I count down my, my questions and time with you here and and uh, and bring it to a close, I wanted to ask you for listeners who maybe haven't heard of the Tragically Hip uh, from other countries or haven't, you know, maybe heard uh, your songs. What would be a starting point, would you suggest, as either a song or two or a particular album to, uh, to begin with for uh, people who are just you know, wanting to for the first time, perhaps that are listening here. Mm, yeah, that's that's a tough one because you know, I, I just judging from not uh, just a little bit my thoughts, but thoughts of other fans. You know, there's certainly met a lot of Road Apples people, um, yet a lot of Day for Night people because Day for Night's kind of was a, more of a curveball. Um, up to here is pretty straightforward fully is quite um like a developed different sound so i wouldn't know where i'd say to start i mean i'm sorry i'd say phantom power you know it's it's um you know it's kind of right smack dab in the middle of things too for you guys right it's right in the middle yeah of of uh, career wise uh, pretty close and and um got fireworks and bob cage and you know something on it's kind of it's it's um it's it's very understandable hip and you know the complaints that we uh wasn't complaints but say in reviews and that kind of stuff over the years um we it, it took a few listens um 
for some of our songs for people to kind of get it. Okay. I like it. And, and, but it, it, they weren't right off the bat likable. It was kind of like, what's this? And um, so I think we're very much an acquired taste that um, uh, with repeated listens and, and that's, that's no accident, you know, cause we, we didn't want to write pop or, or anything like that. And um, we were really kind of making our own decisions. So it was just what was coming out um in the wash so um i'd start with phantom power but then i'd go right back to road apples and um and then go from there okay right on hey there's phantom power and there's staying power and yeah your songs definitely have that what about uh how about this a, a tennis player walking out for a big match at the u.s open and you know they've got their walkout songs almost like boxers do these days right what would be the tragically hip song to pump them up, to pump up the crowd for that big marquee, you know, nighttime New York U.S. Open match. Hmm. Well, you got to go with one of the bigger ones, you know. So I would say Little Bones, Blow It High Dough. Um, you know, if you wanted to sort of calmly get into the match and just kind of, you know, really just – or I'm just going to stay in the match for the first little while. You might throw ahead by a century, but then now I just thought courage probably would be um, the most appropriate. I'm going to talk know. to the the DJ at the National Bank Open next summer, and we'll get some of these into regular rotation. Um, <laughs> hey, if we before we wrap up here, Paul, I just uh, <laughs> wanted to definitely give you the opportunity to talk a little bit about what you're up to these days, because I know you're touring with your own band, the Paul Langwa Band, and. I think in association with the Sky Diggers as well. So uh, the the floor is yours. What uh, what are you up to, and where can fans of yours uh, come see you these days? Well, um, we put out a Paul Langwa band put out a record uh, in July, and we played a few festivals over the summer, mostly just in Ontario, actually all in Ontario, but Mariposa and um, a few cool festivals, maybe seven or eight of them. We rehearse once a week. I love the guys; they're great guys. They're all Kingston guys that I've known um, quite a long time um, and played with here and there, but um, this is a new thing. And, you know, a plan for the future to maybe do another record and definitely hopefully play festivals next summer. But we are doing a four gig run with the Skydiggers and um, the Sky Skydiggers started when the hip started and, um, eventually like in and around that time and um like mid 80s and um Gordowney and I ended up moving with our girlfriends um to Toronto and we started hanging out with uh particularly Josh and Andy from the Sky Diggers and we had a Monday morning hockey game that we played every Monday and um you know we were just uh kindred spirits uh the hip and the Sky Diggers so Anyway, um, we've kept very much in touch, and um, they had uh, they had they have a new record out, and um, they're doing a bunch of touring. And then we just thought, well, why don't we play together a few dates where the Sky Diggers aren't going to be touring? And so it's uh, at the end of November. It's four gigs. You know, we're going to take turns uh, headlining, like going on last. And yeah, it's Peterborough, Belleville, Kingston, Ottawa four days in a row and uh, yeah, you could find that online uh, easy peasy and it's just going to be fun and we'll play together, you know, at the end and, um, and they're just beautiful people and um, you know, everyone's excited and, and it's just uh, yet another reason for us to jam once a week, which Very is always cool. fun. Very cool. Well, yeah, our fans can check you out on Instagram, Paul Langwa band and, uh, and maybe catch one of those gigs on the road. Uh, we're going to throw to Bumblebee on our way out today, which is one of the new old songs from that Phantom Power re-release. We used it a few weeks ago with Jake's Blessing. And um, hey, thanks for continuing to share the the music with us. Thanks for taking the time to talk to me and our listeners on Matchpoint Canada today. Uh, I can't tell you how special this was for me and, and I hope for those listening at home too. Well, thanks a lot, Mike. Thanks for having me. And it was nice. It was a treat to talk uh, tennis for a few minutes too absolutely you got an open invitation to come back anytime <laughs> okay thanks i'll take you up on it there you have it mike's conversation with paul 
Um, I mean, I mentioned my Kingston connection, so it's always cool to hear him mention a couple of pubs and bars that I used to, to go to back in the day. And I like the parallels that you were able to draw between a musician and a tennis player. Uh, obviously, life on the road is the first thing that comes to mind. Absolutely. And then also how you handle the the fame and notoriety as you make it big. And, you know, I like how he called it the big four. And at first I'm like, oh, is he talking about like Roger, Rafa, Andy and Novak? But no, he meant the big four Canadians that we have in mm -hmm. Leilani, Fernandez, Bianca, uh, Dennis Shapovalov and Felix Ogialiasim. And, and yeah, that is what we have here in Canada in terms of the, the big four, the biggest four we've ever had at one time simultaneously. And uh, really cool to hear his engagement with the sport that he used to play a lot back in the day uh him and his wife are big fans and that him and gord downey uh lead singer of the tragically hip who you know unfortunately is no longer with us but that the two of them used to take to the courts quite a bit so i found that really endearing and and i learned a lot about the band that that i grew up loving and so for me it was special on many levels and i gotta be honest of all the interviews we've had on matchpoint canada and my goodness we've had countless of them over the years literally years that we've done this together but that one's right up at the top for me uh, between that and Jimmy Connors, the two that just hit all like those childhood memories for me. And uh, it was really, really special. Yeah, definitely. Uh, could, could hear the excitement in your voice, which was, which was awesome. And uh, you know, as, as we move into the tennis from this past week, you know, Paul mentioned some of the struggles of the Canadian four, you could say, and um, frankly, we're finally seeing the turnaround that I think we, we'd we hoped we would see this season. Uh, it, it came first with Layla Fernandez getting her first title in Hong Kong just a couple weeks ago, and now Felix Ojeali-Asim, who you could argue, uh, based on last season and how well he performed, was struggling the most of any of our top players by far. So for him to produce the week that he had, defend his title at the Swiss Indoors in Basel, win his first title of 2023, defend those 500 points and, and stay in the top 20. As I saw one, one pundit put it, Felix saved his season with this tournament. Absolutely true. And it's incredible how quickly things can change because we're recording on the Sunday. I mean, Felix just literally won today against her catch. I spoke with Paul Langwa maybe three, four days ago. And it's incredible how the narrative on Felix's season can change so quickly because earlier in the week, uh, understandably and justifiably so, this season has been a, a write-off for him. He hadn't been anywhere near what we expected. And the way he was last fall, winning those three tournaments in a row, you thought, wow, 2023 is going to be his year to take it even further. And what a, you know, I hate to call it a regression, but what a step back for him really up until this point. And you and me have been kind of dreading this part of the season for Felix, thinking, my goodness, how much pressure is he going to have on himself just yeah. to maintain his ranking, he can't get any better. You can't improve on last year because you're only defending your points. And we thought, wow, how is he going to handle that pressure? And turns out he handled it just fine. And in his post-match comments really spoke to, you know, how much this proves his belief in himself and how he belongs at this stage, you know, top 20 in the world. And uh, yeah, just absolutely salvaging what otherwise had been um, a very trying season for the young Canadian. Yeah, look, since Indian Wells, where uh, it had been the last time he had won consecutive matches until just a couple weeks ago, he endured a 3-12 and stretch, you know, 12 losses over 15 matches, which was just unfathomable, unfathomable considering the level of tennis we saw from him last year. Uh, but the week he produced here was, apart from one match, very stellar. I mean, he started against a wild card and won comfortably. He defeated Bodig von de Zonskulp in straight sets, and his numbers were great there. 20 winners to three errors. The match against uh, Alexander Shevchenko, who was a surprise quarterfinalist, that was the one where I, I think kind of turned the corner for Felix because he was kind of physically wilting away in the third set. You could tell something was off. He wasn't feeling well. He wasn't moving well and just somehow dug out a victory in three sets, just hung in there, served well when he needed to and got past this quarterfinal. He said it was the worst he's felt physically on court maybe ever and won that match and then turned around, got fresh for a semifinal against Holger Runa, who's endured his own struggles this season, played definitely his best match of the year there winning clean and straight sets. And then against Hubert Hercatch, 7-6, seven, 7-6 six, seven, six in the final. 
Hercatch did not have a single breakpoint opportunity that entire match, which just tells you how clean Felix was playing. Uh, 45 aces across his five matches for the week. He also made first serves above a 60% rate uh, all week, except for one match. So everything was clean and clicking. You know, he served so well all of last year, and I feel like that's been a component that's been a little off for him in 2023. And he really ultimately founded this week and he definitely loves the indoor hard courts, but I think this can propel him um, for 2024. A great recap of his tournament there, Ben. That's fantastic. And, you know, beating Holger Runa in the semifinals, admittedly Runa hasn't played his best tennis this year either, but still the number one seed and partnering with Boris Becker recently as a new coach. And how often do we see players unite with a new coach and all of a sudden have terrific results? Like it's an immediate turnaround and impact Look at what happened with Coco Goff this summer with Brad Gilbert, for example, uh, when she had been struggling for a little bit. So to beat Runa right now, I think, is is bigger than one might initially give it credit. And to beat uh, Hercatch, who's been absolutely on fire lately, winning in Shanghai just a couple of weeks ago, uh, this is huge. And to me, it's incredible how a certain surface, perhaps a return to the familiar, I thought it was going to bring more pressure than Felix maybe could handle right now, given his losses. Total opposite, being back in that indoor environment, a place where he had won before. Uh, maybe he's channeling his inner Roger Federer since they're born, you know, on the same day. And there he is in Basel, where Federer had so much success in his career. But it, it's incredible how a return to the familiar can really bode well for a player, even if they've been struggling. Yeah, uh, that that's well said. And I, I'm really glad, as you said, he didn't apply that extra pressure on himself going into this indoor hardcourt season, which he totally could have done. I think he took a smart approach because he didn't actually opt to defend that title in Antwerp. He took a different route, got some points at a 500 event instead, and sort of backed up his ranking that way and gained a little confidence, I think, from that previous week, getting a couple match wins in a row, which he hadn't done before, uh, you know, at the Japan Open there before he lost to Marcos Giron. But that seemed to lend itself to his success in Switzerland. And uh, just love the tweet he put out. Um, he said, I'm back. That was that was the first sentence of his tweet today. Back to back in Basel feels extra special after this year. Um, but And he is. But, and he is back, isn't he? Exactly. I mean, it's incredible. No matter what happens next from here to the end of the year, he got that trophy. He defended a title. Uh, he, tra- he changed the narrative of his season. And he maintained his top 20 presence. It's really incredible how one event can just completely alter the way, uh, you know, the perspective you have about how a player has been performing this season. Yeah. And uh, I, I think this is also huge for Team Canada. It's really Davis Cup is is next on the schedule for Felix. And, and that's the next big event. We didn't want him going in as the lead number one in singles, struggling uh, for to find form and, and not feeling his game because... I know he's going to feel not pressure, but excitement for that event and an opportunity to defend Canada's title from last year, which was, of course, epic and historic. I feel like, again, this is going to be a scenario where hopefully it's pressure off for Canada. They know they've done it before at Davis Cup. Felix is there. Vashik Pospisil again there and will, will be relied upon in doubles. And then we'll have Galerno and, and Gabriel Diallo, who've both been playing some fantastic tennis and have proven they they belong. And now you really feel like with the week Felix just had in Basel, you have a true number one. It's a very strong group. Um, and even with Denis Shapovalov missing out, uh, there's some depth there because Milos is back in the mix. And yes, Milos who knows as well. if we'll see who knows if we'll see him play or not. I mean, between Milos and Vashik, who do you put in for that number two single slot? Maybe you put in Diallo, maybe you put in Gallerno. My goodness, they've got like four legit options behind Felix who's in the number one seat so I think that's terrific I think a lot of nations would look at the Canadian roster right now and say damn they've got a good thing going on there between the young guys and the older guys and uh and so I like that that position they're in and as we're about to transition to the women's side as well in the WTA Billie Jean King Cup coming up as well and that'll be the focus on our episode next week that squad is also looking really good and uh you know the young in on that squad um uh, Stakushik just coming off a fantastic result as well here in our hometown of Toronto. So maybe speak a little bit about the Tevlin, her result there, and, and we can talk a bit about our experience at that fine little uh, 60K Challenger event as well this past week. Yeah, look, Marina Stakushik, uh, I mean, she so deservedly gets the opportunity to join the Billie Jean King Cup squad. She was ITF Player of the Month for September, winning those two titles, one in Spain and then a 60K in Berkeley. And for 
her to now come to the Tevlin Challenger in Toronto and play as well as she did. And she had a couple tough wins. I, I know we we talked about her first scoreline because we've been texting back and forth about the tournaments. She won her first match. Love and love very, the very bagels, quickly. Bagels. Yeah, so she served a couple bagels to begin this tournament. But after that round of 16, she was down a set to Eden Silva. Quarterfinals, she was down a set again to Radovchich. Uh, coming back seven six six four in the second and third sets, and then a, a difficult final against a pretty experienced Croatian player in Jana Fett, who I watched courtside um, in her first match actually against Ariana Arsenault, and she looked really really impress- impressive. Very athletic player, you know, has all the shots, good variety and mix, hits hard, can defend the court. That she looked like she definitely could be a contender to win it and rightfully so was in the finals. She beat Maboko in the semifinals, six, two, six love. So you can tell she's very high caliber player and Stakushik again was down a set, uh, lost the first six, three, but rallies for a three, six, seven, five, six, three victory, three ITF titles now in the fall for Marina Stakushik, uh, as her ranking, uh, continues to rise. And she's the fourth Canadian now to win the Tevlin challenger, which started back in 2005. So nearly 20 years ago, and in the maiden edition, Alexander Wozniak, uh, an accomplished Canadian player, won that year. Uh, Jeannie Bouchard won in 2012. Gabby Dabrowski won in singles in 2014. And uh, look at what all those players went on to accomplish. So you got to think that for Stakushik, that bodes really well. It was a great tournament for Canadian players overall, if you think about it. Um, I mean, we had some younger players in there, some NCAA players in there. Uh, Kayla Cross made it to the doubles finals, yeah. uh, which was a great result for her. Boko making the semis, Takusha continuing her strong play. I mean, ITF Player of the Month for September. Maybe she's going to keep that going in October as well with these strong results. Uh, so it's always great for the, the fans that come out. Uh, a modest number of fans. It's not nearly the same level as obviously what we see at the NBO in August. But the Canadian fans were definitely behind their, their homegrown players. That makes a difference for sure. And uh, and I think for Ryan Borkson, tournament director, who we got to hang out with a bit this week, uh, this has got to be, uh, you know, and for Tennis Canada, really a big success to see who ends up with the trophy at the end of the day. Oh, definitely. And uh, even early on in this tournament, I mean, the number two seed, Arena Rodionova of Australia, uh, definitely another threat to to win this event. And she went toe to toe three sets with is- Canadian, young Canadian Isabel Boulay, uh, who really pushed uh, a player who's been, you know, close to the top 100 in the past and a, a seasoned veteran who's won four ITF titles this season. And she had a, a lot of crowd support in that match, which was, a, I believe, on the Wednesday. I sort of cut the tail end of that one. Uh, yeah, It was a really strong showing, as you said, uh, from a number of Canadians and a great tournament for, on- honestly, for Vicky Maboko, even if uh, she faltered in that semis to, to Yana Fett, uh, for her to get three wins, make it that far, that's definitely a success story. You know, I spoke to a few people who had a chance to watch her and they were like, wow, that girl's serve is huge. <laughs> a few people remarked that her serve is incredible. And, and it seems you know, bigger on the smaller stage too, right? Like we saw it at the NBO, sure. uh, not this summer, but the one before, looked yeah. great over on the grandstand court and many people were gushing about it. And then here you are in a smaller indoor venue. You can hear the serve better because of the echoes, um, you know, in that indoor environment. You're closer to the court as well. And yeah, no doubt anyone who's going to see it up close like that is going to say like, wow, this is a, this is the real deal here. And she's going to be, I think, a, a fantastic professional player. Oh, definitely. And as, as I said, I mean, only 17 years old, uh, she gets a huge boost in her ranking. She'll be up to number 322. Marina Stakushich, uh with this victory up to a career high ranking of 257 which is really really impressive she still hasn't turned 19 uh so i think future is bright i i mean we we've said it before this can be a showcase tournament in a sense for some of the young prospects that we have and uh we've seen the incredible success stories in the past of your gabby dabrowski's and bianca's who've who've played this tournament had success and gone on to Layla fernandez uh gone on to incredible things yeah. Hey, let's shoot up the rankings to the top eight because that's where we are now on the WT yep. already at the uh, season finals in Cancun. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, a little bit um, distracted by the fact that the venue is not up to par for what you would expect any professional tour would offer for their top eight players as the players arrived. And it was a little bit embarrassing as the stadium court, if you want to call it that, was still very much under construction. The players not having an opportunity to 
practice on it prior to their first matches. And, you know, it really does a disservice, unfortunately, to the product on the court and the players and all that they can produce that unfortunately the WTA has left things to the last minute, took so long to find this venue and then having it put together literally at the last minute. Um, I, I got to say kind of shame on them for, for the way that they're handling this tournament that should be the culmination of, you know, 11 months of fantastic tennis on the women's side of things. Yeah. The great disappointment is it's a world-class event. It's the eight best players of the season that you expect world-class amenities, world-class venue, players taken care of. And and it's just really bad optics, I think, for the WTA as an association, for the, the tennis world at large, when we have these superstar players you know, posting on social media being, media being like, ah, we got here, there's only two you know, crummy practice courts to prepare on. And they're preparing for one of the biggest tournaments of the year. It's yes, it's not a major, uh, but in terms of ranking points, this is as high as it can get. Uh, This is, you could argue the fifth biggest event of their season. If you qualify, it's a goal that all players have at the front end of the year. If you are a top player is to qualify for the end of year finals, WTA and ATP. Uh, So this is something that really has to be solved. I think by the WTA moving forward, establishing your venue ahead of time, reaching an agreement for hopefully a few years in advance and, and making sure everything is set up and and organized in, in order before these players get there. And, and that's not a knock against Cancun or Mexico, which I think is a no. fantastic place to hold these events. The crowds are top notch. I mean, every tennis event I've ever witnessed in, in the country of Mexico has been, you know, full of rabid fans, incredible support. Um, you know, the women in some places don't get as much promotion or attention, perhaps, as the men, unjustifiably so. But in Mexico, it always seems like they're wholeheartedly supported. And so uh, it really is just, I think, a matter of the, the timing, the logistics and the lack of lead in preparation to put on a, a um, event of this magnitude. That being said, looking forward to seeing, you know, the tennis that's going to unfold this week on the court, both in singles and in doubles. In singles, I think it's, you know, the, the most one of the most um, competitive fields of eight players that, that we've seen. And both of those pools look incredibly strong. I mean, there's going to be some fireworks on the court once it gets going. And it, it did get going today, actually. Yeah, it did. And uh, look, Carolina Muhova was the one out of the eight who had qualified who did have to pull out of this event due to injury. She tried to get healthy in time, just couldn't make it happen. So Maria Sacri stepping in. And maybe Maria was not prepared <laughs> for this because uh, the WTA finals kicking off in Arena Sabalenka with we can maybe call it a statement win when you're winning six love six one at the WTA finals against anybody, but what a start for her. Uh, Total destruction. Yeah. Complete destruction. She is the world number one for a reason. She's had an absolutely fantastic season uh, and, and she deserves that world number one. And, and what, a start for her next up she'll get uh pagula and then she'll have to pay, face uh Rybakina in her group uh great matches great matchups eh? really good matches i mean coco goff we'll see can she back up that incredible summer that she she had of course culminating in that first major victory at the u.s open uh iga Sviantek, i feel like she's hungry to get back to that number one spot and she's been playing incredibly well last year she couldn't quite deliver at the wta finals so she'll be hungry for to, to, to avenge what ha- happened from last year. I think some really interesting storylines and uh, a great opportunity for all eight to, to prove themselves at, at the final tournament of the year. Yeah. I want to feel like, I want to say like Sviantek in particular to me is, is really out for it. Like she wants to end on a high and yeah. it, it's a funny thing I'm going to mention here. And I don't know. It, it means nothing really, but when I was seeing the pre tournament pictures of all eight of them and seven of the women were wearing white, and Sviantek was wearing this red dress. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, she's out for blood. Like, she wants it, you know? Oh, yeah. And what a kind of statement to make, whether that was knowingly or unknowingly. I don't know. I kind of read into that maybe too much. But um, she's my pick for this one because I think she really wants to end the season by making that statement. And, uh, you know, we've had a new champion every year since 2014 at the WTA Finals when Serena won her last one. So it's been a revolving door. And I expect that trend uh, clearly will be continuing again this year. Uh, but I'm very much going to be keeping an eye on this. Sometimes at the end of the year, it's it's hard to st- sustain that interest. Yeah. Uh, but but mine is, is as high as it's ever been, I feel like, with the eight women that are in this field this year. 
Yeah, definitely. And yeah, we will get the new champion, right? Caroline Garcia winning last year. And of course is not there in the final eight. I I'm with you. I, I, it feels like such a, a lazy pick, but I, I almost sense like an Iga arena final. I, I don't know. Uh, especially the way Sabalenka defeated Zachary. She, she seems incredibly hungry as well, that maybe these two are standing uh, just one step uh, ahead of the rest of the pack, but a lot of matches to be played. Maybe I'll be a, uh, completely wrong which i have been in the past many times and let's uh i'll probably be there with you well since we're both going for the same player i guess i will be um and in doubles let's not to forget to mention that gabby dabrowski and aaron routliff uh both canadian um are also there and amazing for them because they hadn't even played a match together until late summer and now qualified together and that just speaks volumes to the success they had over the last course of the season and the amount that they prioritized this event and wanting to make it. They played a ton of events, even post their U.S. Open win, in order to make this happen. So good for them, and we'll be behind them. Leila Annie Fernandez not there, although, my goodness, so close to having two Canadians, um, you know, who represent Canada anyways in, in Leila and Gabby there, uh, but not meant to be. Yeah, Leila and Taylor Townsend missing out by that final double spot by 15 ranking points so you can tell just just how close they were uh hey you know what maybe Layla will be there in doubles and singles next year totally possible i would (laughs) you never know although although i feel like to really qualify for one or the other you almost have to do it at the detriment of the the other competition you know that's true if you're playing too much doubles are you burning yourself out in singles if you're having that single success probably you're not doing as much doubles um, but there have been players who've done it before. Pagula so. and Goff are doing it, of course. Pagula and right. Goff are Frank the exception Chikova to the rule. comes to mind as well. I think she's done yes. singles and doubles in the same yep. year. So it is possible. Just, you know, you really got to be on your game and have a season to remember to make that, uh, you know, happen. Yeah, it is, it is difficult. As we wrap up, I, I want to mention a, an interesting note that Felix Ojeale seen the fact that he was able to defend his title in Basel, uh, eighth career, pardon me, fifth career title, He's still managed to do something Daniil Medvedev has never done, as Medvedev ah. was one match shy of defending his title in Vienna and remains at 20 career titles in 20 different locations. Yannick Sinner uh, beating Medvedev in one of the matches of the year, if uh, you had a chance to watch a three-set thriller um, of absolutely incredible tennis. Sinner, Medvedev, Djokovic, Alcaraz remain a cut above this season uh as we wind down the season guys will be watching the wta finals getting ready for billy jean king cup as well and uh, we thank our guest paul langlois for this week so special to have him on the podcast he said he'd love to come back and i'm going to hold him to that and uh, thanks again to jake gold manager of the tragically hip friend of the podcast for hooking us up with with paul uh yeah i wasn't sure what to expect uh, here comes this mu- musician How much tennis knowledge does he have? Wow, what a tennis fan. I really, truly enjoyed that conversation on so many levels. We'll we'll end the episode playing Bumblebee from their re-release of Phantom Power, 25th anniversary of that epic album of the Tragically Hip. Enjoy. Thanks for tuning in. We'll talk to you next week, tennis fans. Reflected in chrome, it's feeling vaguely familiar.